1: When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 508- Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 16th, 2013. We will definitely be doing our light edition today. It's a Wednesday tradition here at Fighting for the Faith, although it moves from time to time, today it will not be. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, every week, one of the days, we have what I call a light episode. It's not that the episode is light or fluffy or not you know, deep. It actually oftentimes is very deep, very compelling, but it's only one topic. And uh we just finished up our uh little mini series that we did with some of the uh, lectures f- from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And uh I, I received the uh, a link to this uh resource this morning and listened to it and thought how timely. And thought I would uh, use this to uh, use what uh, a listener emailed me today for today's light episode of Fighting for the Faith. Weird, kind of really timely. So, what we're going to be listening to today is a lecture uh, delivered by Alistair Begg. At the uh, Crew Conference, that would be formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, and now they're Crew. And the name of his lecture is I Found It Necessary. I Found It Necessary, and uh, this lecture. Well, it's another lecture on the book of Jude. It sounds like I might be beating the same drum, but this is a drum that needs to be beat. And so let's just say that it's a fantastic lecture. I think you will find it very helpful and useful. And so without any further ado, here is uh, Alistair Begg and his lecture, I Found It Necessary, on the book of Jude. Here we go.
2: Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be here. I want to read a few verses from Jude, and since I don't think you can see anything, you'll have to go home and check and see whether this is actually in the book of Jude. Um, Before I do, this gives me an opportunity that I've long wanted, and that is to say uh, a little something concerning my own indebtedness to crew what was in 1967 for me, Campus Crusade for Christ, I ran into an American family, fell in love with an American girl, and part of the pathway to her hand was in uh, encouraging her mother and father to think well of me, and one of the ways in which I did that was to accept an invitation to go to an institute of biblical studies, whatever that was, at the University of Aberystwyth in Wales, and uh, I did along with Bud Higson and Doug Olson and Charlie Powell and Lee Carlson and Wes Hurd and a whole ton of others. And there I learned for the first time how to share my faith. I was a believer, but I had no uh, sense of being able to go up to anybody or engage anyone in conversation. And so I'm very, very thankful for that. In 1972, I came to America for the first time to track down this American girl whose mother and father were taking her to a thing called Explo 72. And so I figured if she's there, it must be a great thing. And so I went to Explo 72, 50,000 people every night in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. And through the day, we evangelized the whole place. When we left Dallas, uh, there's a big uh, John Wayne or something in Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. It sits on a plinth, if I remember correctly. And as I was walking to my gate to go to California, there was a four spiritual laws sticking between the thumb and the first finger of the, big, of the big statue. And it was a great metaphor. We had evangelized every living person in the city, and uh, we had moved on to the statues. I then went to Arrowhead Springs to check out that place and uh, found it fascinating, enjoyed it so much that when I got back to London, I was supposed to go home, but I decided I won't go home because there was another thing going on in Linz in Austria, another one of these institutes of biblical studies. And so off I went on the, in, in, in a VW microbus across the English Channel, and uh, the rest is history. But I want you to know that it was, it is to American Christians and American Christians of your lineage who came to our fair shores and taught many of us who are frightened to engage anybody in conversation how to tell others about Jesus. And I want to say thank you and to acknowledge my indebtedness to you. Um, Here I am 45 years later. It's hard to think that I was 16 then and I'm 61 now. But God remains faithful and uh, what a context this is. Jude chapter 1. I'm going to uh, teach from Jude uh, tonight and tomorrow morning. Uh, Tonight in the opening verses, tomorrow in the closing verses, and the really difficult verses in the middle, I'm not going to touch at all. Um, I haven't been in pastoral ministry for all these years uh, to miss that. But anyway, uh, here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Amen. A brief prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Now, I wonder how many of you have heard studies in the book of Jude. Probably not too many because it is one of the most, if not the most, neglected of the New Testament letters. The Bible is always timely. The Bible is always relevant. But this brief letter of Jude is of vital importance whenever we encounter those who are identified in verse 18 as scoffers following their own ungodly passions and in doing so are seeking to unsettle and to undermine the faithful. History tends to be cyclical. It is ultimately linear, I understand that. But things come around. And when you review church history, you don't have to go very far back to discover periods which are helpful in understanding our own. For your consideration, I suggest that it is worth uh, us looking at the parallels between the conditions of evangelicalism at the time of Charles Haddon Spurgeon at the end of the 19th century and where we are today. For Spurgeon lived at a time of theological declension. He lived in a period where the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible was being vigorously attacked when the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement was ridiculed, And instead of the church holding the line, there was capitulation and there was radical unbelief. And as a result of that, if you read the history of the time, God was being robbed of his glory and man of his hope. Spurgeon said of the time, these destroyers of our churches appear to be as content with their monk work as monkeys with their mischief, that which their fathers would have lamented they rejoice in. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. Now allow that just to settle for a moment in your thinking. And tell me if I'm not correct that we are virtually preoccupied with and potentially paralyzed by the rise of what is referred to as the new atheism. So much attention being given to it. And yet, even a casual understanding of church history will make it clear to us that the church has never declined as a result of that kind of external pressure. It has always dwindled as a result of crumbling from the inside. And Spurgeon is accurate when he says, the greatest danger is not from those who rail on the fringes of faith, but it is those who, as the proponents and exponents of faith, begin to dilute and to distort the message. That kind of candor, of course, (laughs) is striking. It's deemed inappropriate in many circles. And the pungency... Yes, the pungency of Jude's letter fails to abide by the contemporary demands of political correctness. Are you brave enough, silly enough, honest enough to go through this list and listen to how he describes these people? Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars, unreasoning animals, loud-mouthed posters. This is the book. this is Jude. Now if you find that kind of thing appealing, beware because Jude is not operating on that basis. and Jude, nevertheless, this little neglected letter has proved to be a happy hunting ground for individuals such as were' alluded to in the drama that we have just observed. That is, that it has proved a happy hunting ground for the snarling and for the contentious, for the people who are always spoiling for a fight. They are antagonistic, they are belligerent, they are combative, and they are generally disagreeable. And one of my earliest visits to the United States, I heard someone define the theological and sociological environment as being one in which men and women were going to hell in a handbasket. He actually didn't say it like that. He said, going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> I, I had not a clue what the fellow was on about. I, I, didn't, I, I hadn't seen one of the baskets. I knew, I knew, where, I knew where hell was, but I didn't know how you could get there in that particular way. <laughs> it wasn't so much that he used the terminology as it was the expression in his face. He didn't seem to be alarmed by it or distressed by it. He seemed to be really happy about it. And indeed, his pronouncement was couched, if you like, in the language here in Jude. But he does Jude a disservice. Because if you read Jude, you will notice that his tone is not one of condemnation, but his tone is one of consternation. His tone is one of dread it is one of dismay. And I suggest to you that as an exercise, you might do what I did. And that is, having read these verses through a number of times, I sat down with a blank sheet of paper and a pen, and I then tried to summarize Jude in my own words. Let me tell you how my summary came out. I'm writing like this, not because I want to, but because I must. And because I love you, and long to see you kept and keeping on. Let me remind you of those sad and powerful examples from history. They make my point. Remember, we were told to expect this kind of thing. So keep your chin up, stay steady, be gracious, save others, rest in God. He has everything under control. And then I reflected on that and I began to sing to myself, Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember. Yeah, yeah. Nah, nah. Yeah, 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 yeah that's, awesome, that's awesome. Yeah. This is good. This is good. This is good. Well, I think I made the point. We'll have the benediction and move on. Now, the way in which we sing the na 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 is the real issue, isn't it? You see, there's no na 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 of antagonism and of belligerence. No. He begins with a warm greeting, doesn't he? There's a winsomeness, there's a tenderness that is easily missed if you jump far too quickly to verse 3 and to the verb contend. Strictly speaking, his name is Judas. But most, most Bibles and English translations refer to him by the abbreviation so as not to confuse him with another Judas, namely Judas Iscariot. He grew up in the same home as Jesus the brother of Jesus. But like the rest of his family, he didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, which is a reminder of the fact that no one is too privileged to be exempted from the need to be converted. And for Jude, the family connection, you will notice, is subservient to the wonder of salvation. Look at how he introduces himself. If you had grown up as the brother of Jesus and you'd been writing a letter that was for posterity, don't you think you would have bled with Jude, a very special brother of Jesus Christ? Uh, Jude, I grew up with Jesus Christ. No, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He has his priorities in the right way. It's clear that he shares a common salvation with those to whom he writes. And he identifies them, you will notice, by means of three verbs. Incidentally, um, Jude is, is very uh, fond of these uh, triplets. I, I was thinking about it. You'll see them they're, they're here called, beloved, and kept. I was thinking that his favorite group would probably have been Peter, Paul, and Mary or or maybe Three Dog Night. But he loves these, he loves these triplets. Called to those who are called from eternity, God's purpose to put together a people that are his very own. Revelation 7 from 7 from every tribe and nation and people and language and tongue. You don't need me to tell you about that. You believe that. Incidentally, I am not here to inform you of something you do not know, I am here to remind you of something that you must never forget, that it is the unmistakable purpose of God to include men and women in his forever family, and he chooses in the mystery of his providences to enlist us in that exercise, called by God, beloved in God. Beloved in God, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're safe. He's later on going to urge them to keep themselves in God's love and not only called and loved but kept, kept by and kept for in fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus. In John 17, Father, keep them in your name. So it's very, very important to understand this, because before he warns his readers, he provides them with warm encouragement by means of these verbs have been called, are loved, and will be kept for a wonderful future. In our teaching, it's important to get this right, the warmth of encouragement in the context of the severity often of exhortation. His brief prayer on their behalf reinforces this. Notice how he prays for them again, a triplet. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, a mercy that they have discovered as a result of God's goodness. Verse 21, a mercy that they are to display to others. Verse 22, peace in the context of a gloomy darkness and an eternal fire and love. The love of God for them and in them and through them—that is His warm little greeting. That is then followed by what we will refer to as a necessary appeal, beloved. Again, notice the warmth of His tone, beloved agapetos. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, instead of writing to you about salvation in general which is something that he was keen to do, he's decided that he must address them on this particular issue. And it's important for us to understand the way in which he does this. Notice the phrase, I found it necessary. I found it necessary. That's the title for this evening's talk, incidentally, because I want that to be understood by all of us. In the NIV, I felt I had to. In Philip's paraphrase, I feel compelled to make my letter to you an earnest appeal. He's not giving them a suggestion to consider. He's making an appeal for them to take a stand for the gospel. And essentially tonight, this is my exhortation to you. Because look at this company and think about Wesley's words. Wesley said, Give me a hundred souls who hate nothing but sin, and love Christ with all their heart, and I will shake England for God. Now, if that wasn't hyperbole, and I don't believe it was, then think about the exponential potential of this room. Think about what is represented in this. And therefore, I come to bring you, yes, a word of exhortation, as I have thought of you, as I have 45 years of happy history. In relationship to you, I believe it is necessary for me to bring to you this reminder from Jude. His concern is akin to Paul's concern for the Philippians. He wanted to make sure that the Philippians were standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And, he says, not frightened by anything in your opponent's. Now, you will notice carefully here that this is not an appeal to contend for faith. It is an appeal to contend for the faith. This is absolutely crucial. Jude is referring to the gospel that saves us. He is referring to the things we believe rather than the fact that we believe them. It's the same thing as you have in Galatians, isn't it? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Paul obviously was greatly concerned that the thing could go south in first century Galatia. In the same case in Ephesus. And in Corinth. And so we would be phenomenally naive if we thought that somehow or another we could skip those sections. No, it is the objective, once for all faith, that is theirs as Christians. And it is that which he wants to make sure they do not dilute and they they do not distort. The gospel has come to us by God's grace, by revelation, by special delivery from God. We have, if you like, signed for it, in terms of the way you signed for a special package that's delivered to you at your home, and having signed for it, we are now responsible to preserve and to proclaim it. What God has said, he has said, with nothing to be added. What God has done, he has done, with nothing else needed. Think about it. When James S. Stewart, in 1952, addressed the faculty and students at Yale Divinity School, he warned them about what he referred to as a theologically vague, and harmlessly accommodating gospel, which he said was absolutely useless, theologically vague, and harmlessly accommodating, able to appeal to the widest basis, able to absorb some of the strangest concoctions and ideas. Paul was concerned for Philippi For the other cities where the church had been planted and now Jude is making the same point, concurring with what the writer to the Hebrews is driving home in the most Old Testament of the New Testament books, making it clear that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Back to Spurgeon in the 19th century, listen, he says, I have always considered with Luther and Calvin that the sum and substance of the gospel lies in that word substitution, Christ standing in the place of man. I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason why I should not be damned is this, that Christ was punished in my place And there is no reason to execute a sentence twice for sin. Loved ones, that is the gospel that Christ died for sinners, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That is the great call of Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians 5. I beseech you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He's not out on the streets of Corinth suggesting that Jesus is a life coach. He's not out on the streets of Philippi suggesting that Jesus might add a little to the sum total of their happiness. He is out proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ is the only savior for Jesus Christ is the only one who is qualified to save. That's what he's saying. And that's why the martyrs died. It is for that conviction, not for a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating story that can be absorbed by virtually any perspective in our 21st century world.
1: All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of today's lecture with Alistair Begg on the opening verses of the book of Jude entitled I Found It Necessary. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right
2: back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to
0: Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your first doctrine now. <laughs> And now, Max Holliday's birdcage here proudly presents Sessions with... Mildred. Um, Mr. Sunshine, your three o'clock appointment is here. Oh, good. Send them right on in. sunshine oh dear i've completely forgotten who i'm meeting let's just see who it is Mm -hmm. let's see oh yes uh mr brightweight was at one o'clock miss woodhead was at two and at three we have no hello Ah! oh
3: dear not again
0: Sorry about that. It was merely a reflex action. I'm trying to get that fixed. So, anyway, why are you here today?
3: I was assigned to you again after my attitude didn't improve last time. Did you forget already?
0: It must be because you don't like me. Of course I don't. Uh, uh, hate you. Nobody hates you here. We all love it when you're not around. I, 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 I mean, uh... <laughs> let's get down to business. We're here to discuss how you performed in our newest Lead Like Jesus program. I'll just pull up the complaint file here. <laughs> <laughs> let's start from the beginning. Approximately three hours later. So after you failed to walk on the lake, you then disappeared for two weeks and were luckily found by hikers in the mountain who claim they found you deliriously raving about how you refused to turn a rock into bread. Do you have anything to say for yourself? But
3: I thought I was leading like Jesus, like you told me to. Uh,
0: I think you failed to see the purpose of this ministry outreach. There are a few accounts that even I can't even understand. Here, explain this one right here.
3: Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus cursed a fig tree and it withered away because it didn't bear any fruit. So my neighbor down the street planted a lemon tree about three years ago, and I've never seen any lemons on it. So, I walked over and cursed it, but it wouldn't die, so I used sulfuric acid instead.
0: What are you doing to my tree? You maniac! Get out of my yard! Uh... What? Why is my tree melting? Sir, do you have a moment to talk about
3: the Lead Like Jesus program?
0: No, I don't have time to! Stop changing the subject! Get off my lawn! Stop! Stop! stop. I I get it! Okay, how on earth did you get banned for life from the local soup kitchen?
3: Well, remember the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14?
0: Yes, we all know the story! You don't mean to tell
3: me! Well... All right, Mildred, we have a large shipment of food that just came in. We need you to direct the men to put it where it all belongs.
0: Right, where do you want it all?
3: Oh, sir, we don't need your food today. I'm just going to lead like Jesus and have God provide these people with food. What?
0: If you don't mind me saying, but I think God provide all the food on this heavily laden truck.
3: It's okay. My pastor had a vision that this would work.
0: Well, that settles it. Men, we've got the wrong place. We thought this was a soup kitchen, but it turns out that this is a loony bin. Head out!
3: Uh, Mildred, where's the food? Don't worry. this is all the food we need. That's just two its crackers and three dead goldfish. I'm leading like Jesus. If you just give me a wicker basket, I'll lift it up and God will multiply it. The only thing that's going to multiply is the number of bruises on your face.
0: Good gravy. That's not what you're supposed to be doing at all.
3: But I'm supposed to. I
0: know. you're supposed to lead like Jesus. But you've clearly took this too literally. And this last one about you making a whip from electrical cords and chasing the poor baristas from the coffee shop in the church foyer while screaming something about brood of vipers and uh, turning God's house into a den of robbers is is taking it too far. Well... No! Not again! No more flashbacks! Why do you keep getting these anyway? Sunshine, open up. This is the police. We received an anonymous phone call from Biblical Repair about you corrupting the youth and forcing them to do terrible things in the name of God. Curse you, anonymous caller! I can't go back to prison! You'll never take me alive, coppers! Ah! Um, does
3: this mean our session is over?
0: That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform. But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. (laughs) Try it on. It's, uh, really itchy... Do not fear, nerds of the world! Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com/forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio.
1: All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your church is preaching the kind of message that Jude warned us about. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons – One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to... Fighting for the faith, and then send it to post office box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's light episode the balance of today's lecture by Alistair Begg entitled, I Found It Necessary and His Teaching on the Opening Verses of the Book of Jude. Here we go.
2: I remember, and it wasn't so long ago, being told by some of my friends, musicians, contemporary musicians, And they were singing at a church in the Midwest. And the pastor took them aside to challenge them on many of their lyrics in their songs. And he wanted to have them uh, reduce the lyrics of their songs. And particularly in the song, um, uh, in, In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found, or The Power of the Cross, one of those two. And the line that he wanted excised was this, The wrath of God was satisfied. He said, I don't want any notion of a wrath of God. Well, loved ones, if you do not have the wrath of God, there is nothing to say about the love of God. For the love of God only makes sense in light of his settled, non-inflammatory response to the sin of man. And it is a sadness to me, but it is no surprise to me to discover that that pastor's views on theology have now been followed by his views on morality. And right up until today, he bears sad testimony to what happens when a man drifts from authentic Christian historical moorings. When we begin to see the doctrine of Scripture as a process towards an understanding of God where virtually any view may be entertained and tolerated, so long as we don't do the dreadful thing, and that is to claim finality. To claim finality. You see, think about it. My Jewish friends believe that Jesus was not the Messiah. I believe he was the Messiah. We can't both be right. My Hindu friends, and I do have Hindu friends, believe that God has been incarnated hundreds and thousands of times. I believe that the incarnation was a unique and unrepeatable event. We can't both be right. High, moral, Muslim friends operate from scales in the hope that the good will outweigh the bad for them. It is a blasphemy that a prophet of God would ever die upon a cross. And for us, the cross of Christ is the pivotal event of human history. It is the crisis of his kingship. It is the epicenter of his reign. We can't both be right. And the notions of tolerance that are pervasive in our day are such that the idea of an intellectual tolerance that finds nothing wrong in any view is not a sign of open-mindedness, it is a sign of a facile mind. We embrace social tolerance, we embrace legal tolerance, but we have to step back from an intellectual tolerance that says all roads lead to heaven like they lead to Timbuktu. Now, you say to me, well, this is a, you know, we are a great group of people here. I think you've been told a lot of stories about us that you don't understand. No, no one's told me any stories. I'm only telling you what I tell my church. And that is that our building could be a carpet sale room within a decade. And it won't be a carpet sale room within a decade as a result of pressure from the outside because the blood of the martyrs will continue to be the seed of the church. But I'll tell you how it can be, and that is when men and women lose the conviction to stand up for a faith once delivered to the saints. Contemporary evangelicalism stands like the armies of Goliath, waiting for a shepherd to step forward and address the issue. And we dare not cloak our cowardness. We dare not cloak our cowardness with the ill-fitting garments of political correctness. And in verse 4, we learn why it is crucial that Jude's readers heed the appeal, not to stand on the touchline to fight with every fiber of their being. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly people. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Isn't that Paul's departure in Acts 20 from Ephesus? And they wept when he's told them that he wouldn't see them again. And he gathered with the elders on the beach and what did he say to them? I haven't hesitated to declare to you the entire counsel of God. I've kept nothing back from you. I've expended my life here with you. I've given you everything that I can give you. And now I'm going to leave you. But I want you to know this, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. And from among your own selves will arise those who will take others away after them and lead them from the faith. Go to Ephesus today and look for vibrant Christianity. Where is it? Paul was absolutely right. The creeping crowd should not unsettle Jude's readers. God hasn't been taken by surprise. It's interesting that he doesn't name them. Some people like to name people all the time. It it just seems, you know... Explosive and vital he doesn't actually name them which is pretty good because then we can use it as a category can't we what were they well they were ungodly they were ungodly do you know what your? do you know what the people you serve got it do you know what your people who serve um, need most in you not your giftedness they need your godliness that's what they need they need you to be godly giftedness without godliness is ultimately of no account it won't matter in eternal terms you may be a hero throughout your entire life but when the day brings it to light we will discover whether it was wood hay and stubble or precious stones and gold and silver right now our need is godliness and these people were ungodly they would have used bible terms they would have been well received at christian conferences but they couldn't be taken at face value And there are two identifying features of their godless opposition. Number one, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. If I had another 30 minutes, we could stop on that tonight and and examine the condition of contemporary Christianity as it relates to lifestyle issues that even when I started off at the Institute of Biblical Studies— 45 years ago, it would have been unthinkable that Christian young people would have entertained so many of the things that are part and parcel of life today. Because the notion of the grace of God is subverted. And we have to make sure that we don't misunderstand and and, and view God's patience with us when we sin as if it was his permission for us in order to sin. These folks perverted it. Sin was dealt with lightly. Freedom is expressed as lawlessness. And anybody who is particularly concerned to hold the line is just dismissed as a legalistic fanatic. Now, we're actually closer to this perversion, loved ones, than than most of us are prepared to admit. Just read the opening psalm. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by the the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in his season. No, they perverted the grace of God, and their opposition wasn't simply sensual, you will notice. It was heretical. It was heretical. They denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They refused to acknowledge him as Lord and Master, Their problem was moral, their problem was theological. Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is Lord. When Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's not an expression of devotion, that is an expression of his identity. What he's doing there, he's saying everybody will finally understand this. So if I understand that Jesus is Lord, then I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he taught. Therefore, I can't re-engineer human sexuality. Then I cannot redefine human marriage. He is Lord. I don't have any option. Please be kind to me. I'm stuck with this. This is all I can do. I'm committed. I have a Lord and I have a master. And this is what he says. I know you find it distasteful, but this is my position. And it's my position because I have a master. Of course, if you don't have a master, you can change your position all the time. And that's exactly what they were doing. We're not free to believe what we want. We're not free to behave as we choose. And that's what they did. Either you will bring your morality into line with God's law, or you will subvert God's law to bring it into line with your morality. I've spent 37 years in pastoral ministry, and I can tell you the minute the person walks in the door what they're going to tell me. and And it's always the same well, you don't understand what she's like. You don't understand this or that. I'm sure God wants me just to be a very happy person. And I said, no, he doesn't actually. He wants you to be a very holy person. So get out and love your wife, you miserable sinner. A warm encouragement, a necessary reminder. And finally, a chilling, a chilling conclusion. I'll leave it to you. Do your own homework. Uh, He says, if if you want to just read church history, he says, remember the people of Israel, they died in the wilderness, made a wonderful start, and ended up in a ripe mess. You might want to think about them, he says. And by and large, the angels of heaven were dissatisfied with their appointed role. They they rebelled, they attempted to be free, they found themselves in chains. And what about that lovely spot, Sodom and Gomorrah? All the people in the plain, they became proud, they rebelled against God's natural order. It's interesting, we don't have time to work that out either, but it's very interesting, isn't it? thats right in there. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire sexual immorality, and unnatural desire, from which it is both necessary and possible to be saved. From which it is both necessary and possible to be saved. And he issues it as a warning and finishes with a nice, cozy conclusion, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. (laughs) Have a good day. No, you see, that's the trouble. That's the trouble. Margaret Thatcher says, if you only want to be liked, you'll be prepared to say anything anytime you want. No, there's a warm greeting. There's a necessary appeal. There's a chilling reminder. And with this, I will conclude. The context into which we go... To quote George Weasel in the introduction to the book, The Light of the World, he says, We live in a world that has lost its story, a world in which the progress promised by the humanisms of the past three centuries is now gravely threatened by understandings of the human person that reduce our humanity to a conjuries of cosmic chemical accidents. We are a humanity, listen to this, with no intentional origin, no noble destiny, and thus no path to take through history. Now, what are we going to do? I suggest to you that we go back to the future. I just came from Ocean Grove in New Jersey. It's a funny place. It's an amazing place. And, uh, and there's a little street there called Pilgrim Pathway. And I said, when I saw Pilgrim Pathway, I said, oh, as I walked the Pilgrim Pathway, I wondered if that was it. It is it. Fanny Crosby was there. She wrote that hymn there. She also wrote this, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave and weep o'er the erring one and lift up the fallen and tell them of Jesus, the mighty, to save. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, cords that were broken will vibrate once more. As a result of your unashamed, unfeigned commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to the Gospel that He has given us to proclaim. May God keep us true to that.
1: What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian.